This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. When I was in college, I really liked comics, especially quote-unquote indie comics, by writers like Dan Close, whose comics Ghost World and Art School Confidential were made into movies, Adrian Tamine, whose illustrations I now see all the time in The New Yorker, and of course old standbys like R. Crumb and Harvey Pekar. When I used to go to my local comic book store, which was far removed from the grubby little boy space of the store that Bart Simpson frequents, I was often surprised to note that I was the only female there. It seemed that as girl-friendly as the comics themselves might have been, and as many girls might have loved reading them when they were around, that message wasn't getting out quite enough to actually bring girls and women into the comics world in any kind of major numbers. There are some, though, who are trying to change that. One of those is my first guest today, Elisa Quitney. Quitney's a visiting instructor in Fordham's English department. She's a writer of both graphic and prose novels. And in the past, she was an editor at Vertigo DC Comics, the publisher responsible for many of the most well-respected graphic novels out there. In the historically teen-boy-dominated world of serious comics, Quitney is among those looking to reach another group, pre-teen and teen girls. Her graphic novel, Token, explores the world of the kind of appealing, somehow different young girl that you'd find inhabiting the world of Twilight or a member of the wedding. Later on in the show, I'll speak with author David Haydu about comics and controversy in America. But first, I spoke to Quitney in our studios about the X-Men, visual storytelling, and what she's working on now. Aliza Quitney, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Now, I would like people to understand why I am so excited about this sort of recent trend toward young adult graphic novels geared toward girls. So tell me how the world of comics has traditionally been set up. Well, comics traditionally has been, I think, written and drawn and read by boys. So um, I think that that ended up affecting the material a lot, too. And I always said, for example, looking at X-Men, that it was interesting because it was one of the few comics that reflected not just the male adolescent dynamic, which, you know, uh, Cyclops has these beams that uncontrollably shoot out of his eyes and, and, and he could destroy anything just by looking at it, which seemed to me indicative of a certain male perspective. But then they, they uh, also have Rogue, who, you know, she can take your powers by touching you, but then she also takes a bit of your personality and loses the sense of who she is, which seems to me a, a much more female perspective. And now that women are drawing and, and they're more creative-owned proje- projects, I think there's a lot more of a, a female perspective. There were always comics geared toward girls, right? But they were toward, like, little girls? Yeah, I mean, I think when I was growing up, there were comics that were aimed at girls. They were, you know, Betty and Veronica and Archie comics were more girls' comics. I loved horror comics. I have to say that, again, I was not a typical girl. And one of the things I loved about horror comics was, you know, that, that you could read them as a girl. They weren't the the traditional male fantasies. In the 70s, there were this bunch of, of feminist superheroes, uh, heroines. There was the cat um, who was was an overtly feminist heroine who had a special cat. She was sort of a female Batman. And then there was my favorite, Shauna the She-Devil, the Jungle Queen with a PhD. And um, and I think that those would have appealed to other women. But when distribution changed and those were not being sold in the corner drugstore, 
fewer girls were going into comic book stores because that was more of a boy. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy. More boys went in there, so so fewer girls went there and so on and so on. I think, you know, it's funny because as a, a, a fiction writer, I've written for largely a female audience, but I don't think that what I write for comics and what I've chosen, you know, has been more female for books and more male for comic books. I think there is probably more of a crossover audience and it, it tends to be how they market things and brand things to some extent. But having strong female characters um, who are proactive and don't necessarily have breasts larger than their head, I think is, is really key. So we've talked a lot about gender, but there's another aspect of what you're doing, which is the young adult thing. That is a term you hear a lot in publishing, but you never hear it anywhere else. <laughs> what does young adult even mean? Um, I think, you know, the the strict interpretation of it, I think, is 13 to 17, which strikes me as, as strange. And I'm sure that it's going to change over time because 13 to 17 is sort of like you know, it's it's like the continent of Africa. It is vast and contains many contradictory things, you know. Um, I also think that it's not a monolithic block, obviously, because, you know, whereas when kids are two or three or even seven, you can make some generalizations about what they like. Once they hit 13, and certainly by 17, uh, the individual's preferences are probably more key than the, the age uh, demographic. That said, I think that what people recognized increasingly is that if you write about that age group and the experiences that that age group is going through, it is appealing to people in that age group. Um, I think realistically, too, when you write about a 13-year-old, you're really actually appealing to middle grade readers. And if you're writing more about a 16 or 17-year-old, that will appeal to younger teens. The young adult graphic novels that you are working on, and you have one called Token, and there's some others as well in the same imprint, actually. Um, they tend to feature sort of the same sorts of characters as young adult novels. I think to some extent, yes, although, you know, one of the things that I talk a lot about with prose writers is how some ideas in, are inherently visual and some kinds of characters are inherently visual and others not so much. So there there are definitely similar ideas and themes, but it helps to have a strong visual element in your story. Um, for me, I had wanted, I had this idea of wanting to write about an age where I think for adults it feels like kids become oppositional and for kids it feels like parents and adults suddenly stop being in love with them. And there's this this disenchantment that sets in. And I also wanted to write about shoplifting and, and Miami in the 80s, which was this incredibly kitschy place. And I thought that that was inherently visual. And the whole Art Deco area of Miami Beach is a very visual area. All of that was, was part of the story. Do you feel like graphic novels are a particularly interesting medium for young girls to read? I think I, I feel they're interesting for girls as, as well as for, for guys. Minx, which was the imprint run by my wonderful friend and editor, Shelley Bond, unfortunately didn't succeed. And I think it was, again, really a distribution problem. Um, I think that it wasn't getting into the bookstores where it needed to be because a lot of girls now are reading manga, which is huge. And I think that's been a huge change in, in how 
people read and how girls read. And manga is a particular style of uh, comic book, of graphic novel that comes from Japan. And um, I think that manga at this point has become an influence on so much of Western comics as well. But a, a purist manga reader wants really a Japanese manga book. And, and some of the uh, readers, I think, will, will want direct translations of Japanese books, even if they're, you know, opening the opposite way than American books open. Um, whereas the, the Minx books, they needed to be in the bookstore shelved with the books, really, so that um, a girl who was looking for um, Sarah Desser or Twilight or, or, or Holly Black or, or Melissa Marr could find a comic that might appeal to her as well and say, you know, this is another way of, of reading and this is incredibly cool. So tell me what you're working on now. Um, I'm actually working on a novel and a graphic novel. The graphic novel is a steampunk, and it's uh, it's steampunk for for anyone who doesn't know is sort of futuristic or alternate universe Victorian. And in in this uh, steampunk world, there's a, a young girl who becomes a medical student at this. Uh, very special medical school. There were actually in Victorian times medical schools that accepted women, very few. Um, but this one is peculiar because they are actually in the business of making basically mechanicals, sort of human mechanical hybrids like Frankenstein-style monsters that are going to hopefully do their Victorian dirty work of soldiering and, and uh, um, sex workers and, and, and that sort of thing. And um, and it's sort of their dark secret that they are producing this. And she is a bit of an outsider at the school because she is a woman and a medical student, whereas the other ones are, are either nurses that are women or medical students that are male. And she begins a relationship with um, one of these creatures. And the creatures are supposed to be kind of zombie-like, but she begins to discover that at least this one uh, does have a greater consciousness and he has memories from different body parts. So the artist um, that's working on this with me is Al Davison, and uh, and that's what we're doing right now. Um, and other than that, I'm also I'm also working on a sort of ghostly romantic comedy novel. <laughs> um, I have one more question. I'll close with this. Why should people who are not young adults and who are not into comics care about what you do? Um, I think because I could say something grandiose like, maybe we will save publishing. But I think increasingly as people are redefining what publishing is, what reading is, whether we're going to have um, mostly e-books. And I think a lot of older people, um, older than 20 that is, are hoping that, that paper books are going to continue to exist in some form. I think graphic novels may be a large part of that because... Um, the desire to still see pictures and reproduce them, um, I, I think that that may, may really be one of the things that keeps books, if, if they continue to be as popular as they are, get more so, you know, can, can help save the, the paper book. But the other reason to read comics is I am a great fan of diverse art forms. And I'm not one of those people who thinks you should read books and therefore not watch TV because shows like Mad Men show you how incredible TV can be. And I don't think you should watch TV but never see a film 
you know, it, there's so many different ways to express yourself. And comic books and graphic novels are amazing. They are more abstract in a way than TV and, and films, but they are visual. And, you know, when I was a kid, that was a negative thing. It was sort of, you know, if you weren't smart enough to read Gulliver's Travels, you got the classic illustrated comic. I love those. I, I see no problem with those. I love those too. But, you know, the great thing is that comics can be so much more. And the interaction between the visuals and, and the text can create some amazing, you know, it, it can create amazing, amazing things. So I think, you know, no need to close yourself off to new experiences. Elisa Quitney, thanks so much. Thank you. Aliza Quitney is an author and a visiting instructor in Fordham's English department. You can learn more about all her work at Elisa Quitney, that's K-W-I-T-N-E-Y, dot com. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Now, when you think about CD entertainment, the kind of thing that might lead you down the wrong path in life, poison your mind, or drive you to violence, you might think of excessive drinking or drug use, or maybe of the video game Grand Theft Auto. But chances are, you're unlikely to think about comic books. Today, comic books are a huge part of mainstream culture, but comics have in the past not been seen in such a positive light as they are today. In fact, almost as soon as comic strips began to be published in newspapers, they were the subject of controversy. Mostly, although not exclusively, because critics saw them as leading young people down the path to juvenile delinquency. David Haydu is the author of books on composer Billy Strayhorn and on the 60s New York folk music scene. And his latest book, The Ten Cent Plague, tells the story of the panic that surrounded comic books in the 1940s and 50s. I spoke to Haydu earlier this year in his office at Columbia, where he's a professor of journalism. I began by asking him to tell me about the wild early days of comics. Early comic books attracted outcasts and misfits of all kinds. And you could see that on the, on the pages. There's this freewheeling kind of anything-goes loopy quality to comics. And you see what's going on in comics, and it's, it, the closest parallel to me is watching my son in the playground, where you could see this, this miracle of invention going on. Now, you know, oh, we're in space, and the next minute, oh, no, 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 okay, now we're in the ocean, and there's, there's a tsunami, and then, oh, and then, but now I turn, I'm a fish now, <laughs> so I turn into a fish. And this kind of freedom and this freewheeling imagination that we think of as uh, being unique to childhood was also unique to comic books. How did comic strips even begin to exist, even before there were comic books? Comic strips flourished in the early days of the Sunday supplements of the major metropolitan newspapers, which were full-color supplements that were geared to the immigrant working classes. And many of the members of those classes were, not I don't want to say illiterate, but weren't English-speaking. Uh, and couldn't read or write English. It's not that they couldn't read or write. It's not that they were illiterate, but the, uh, they weren't fluent in English. So the early comic strips, the Yellow Kid, the Cats and Jammer Kids, the Happy Hooligan, and a number of the other strips evoked the immigrant experience and the immigrant sensibility. And there were caricatures of 
young Germans and young Italians and kind of loving caricatures and a lot of cynicism toward authority figures of all kinds who are usually the schoolmaster or the local cop on the beat who were always the buffoons and the object of ridicule by the heroes who were these rabble-rousing kind of little you know, tykes and hoodlums. So there's a kind of cynicism toward the culture at large coded in these stories of kids in their roughhouse antics in the alleys of New York City. And that comic strips then started to mature and change as the readership broadened, and comic strips lost a lot of that unruly quality. By the mid-30s, when the first comic books were introduced, comic strips had a different function in, in the culture. Comic strip artists were famous people and, and had a kind of were held in esteem in the culture. And to be, to be a comic strip artist like, like Milton Kniff or Harold Gray, was to be a celebrity, you know, a well-known and revered figure in the culture. And comic books took over the role that comic strips had in the culture and were an outlet for kind of cynicism toward authority and, and kind of unruliness and freedom in the way that they took on the role that comic strips used to have. Early comic books and actually early comic strips as well were they were sort of gritty and dirty and uh, stereotypically immigranty. They mm -hmm. took place in neighborhoods, in cities where a lot of the readers in the U.S. wouldn't have been. But unlike a lot of the other media at the time that had sort of the gutter as its setting, it wasn't intended to be instructive about the gutter, mm -hmm. like something like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle or The right. Grapes of Wrath. What's the difference? Yeah, a comic's strips weren't social realism. They weren't intended to glamorize street life or the immigrant experience. They kind of reveled in the roughness of that experience. They represented a kind of sharing of the hardships of that experience and took a kind of delight in that sharing with the readers. So they had a communal function. They were their way of of expressing and parroting the immigrant experience by and for, you know, for the immigrant cl class in the early part of the century. And comic books had a similar function in that they were done by kids uh, for kids, and they had they had a shared purpose of expressing what it was like to be a kid, which was to be. A, a different kind of outsider in American culture in the 30s, 40s, and the early 50s, because this was at a time when uh, youth wasn't central to popular culture the way that it is now. I mean, I mean, I've raised three kids, and they've all grown up in an era when not just popular culture, but the economy is like fixated on youth, and youth is a driving force in the economy and a driving force in the culture. That wasn't always the case on that scale. I mean, not remotely so. Young people in the 30s and 40s, when comics came out, grew, grew up feeling like they wouldn't belong to the culture until they became adults. Right away, as soon as they appear, comics are like surprisingly controversial. It didn't take long for the critics to come out. <laughs> comics, the first comics were published in the mid-1930s. By 1940, comics already had a fierce and vocal critic in the name of Sterling North 
who wrote a venomous a diatribe against comics that was published in Chicago, but distributed nationally and reprinted by dozens of papers all around the country. He wrote that the bulk of these lurid publications depend for their appeal upon murder, mayhem, torture, and abduction, often with a child as the victim, Superman heroics, voluptuous females in scanty attire, blazing machine guns, hooded so-called justice, and cheap political propaganda were to be found on almost every page. His criticism of comics is that, is that they're lurid, they're violent, they're salacious. Cheap political propaganda, I'm not quite sure what he was talking about, although some of the early comics were criticized for being fascist and that superheroes worked above the law. This criticism of comics caught on very quickly and built and built and built. Within a few years, um, a Jesuit priest by the name of Robert E. Southard took up the comic book crusade and published a pretty extensively about what he saw as a causal relationship between comics and juvenile delinquencies. In 1944-1945, this priest is claiming that comic books have or a, a major cause, that's the exact phrase he used, of juvenile delinquency. And parochial schools first, and then later lay schools, uh, started burning comic books as early as 1945, November 1945. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, a panel discussion of veterans' issues. That's ahead at 7.30. First, though, let's hear the rest of my conversation with David Haydu. I asked Haydu to tell me more about the panic that rocked the comic book industry in the 40s and 50s. Comics were very much in sync with the youth culture of the, of the mid-40s. If you look at what was going on with, with young people in the 40s, and look at what, what was going on with comics, young people were changing comic books were changing. Kids started to act more defiantly in the mid-40s. They started to dress and talk and engage socially in ways that defied their parents and defied the status quo. And a lot of this behavior at the time was pathologized as juvenile delinquency. And comic books both reflected and advanced that same kind of kind of cynicism toward authority, kind of absorption with bad behavior, absorption with violence, absorption with sex, and uh, they got darker, more graphic, more lurid, more popular among these people who were interested in these things at the time. And there was nothing in the culture, certainly nothing for young people in the culture that was so graphic, so violent, so lurid. And as you can imagine, this did not sit well with parents or with the protectors of moral values, uh, PTAs, church groups. Comics became a fulcrum for debate and early battle of the culture wars and the full-blown hysteria, you know, uh, emerged. Let's talk about context. What else was going on in the moment when all of this comics-related controversy erupts? There's some big stuff happening, right? It's important to contextualize the hysteria over comics. Uh, we, ha- we have parents, uh, church groups, legislators, who are in an uproar over comics because they saw comic books as a threat to the, the well-being of the populace. <laughs> young people in particular, but not only young people. 
they thought of comics as a threat to public health and public safety. They thought, oh, comics can corrupt youth, lead youth to commit crimes, therefore kids aren't safe and the communities in which kids live aren't safe because they're being corrupted by comic books. Now this kind of fear of uh, an insidious force kind of entering uh, the country and infecting the minds of Americans in a way that could undermine our values was not unique to comics. It was very much in the air at the time. This is the era of the Red Scare, the era of uh, McCarthyism, and the era even of the fear of flying saucers. You know, all sorts of uh, the, the idea that uh, America, right after World War II, uh, was now endangered and was open to the outside influences and that those influences would could infect us had a lot of currency in those days. But there's a big difference between what went on with comic books in, in, in this way and that the Red Scare was a fear of a threat from without. The communism would come and corrupt America. Uh, that's the Red Scare. The fear that comic books tapped was one that the threat would come from within, it would come from our own, that, it would, that kids, our own children, that would represent a challenge to everything that adults held dear. It's a really deep-rooted fear. I mean, I have a couple of kids myself, and the realization that kids are here to replace us <laughs> is a pretty devastating thing. And the realization that they will probably replace not just us, but replace our values, our social values, our even our aesthetic values can be pretty, pretty devastating. And that was a big part of what was going on in the comic book hysteria. It was a battle between two generations, one generation that was protective of its power, but also its values and another generation, a rising generation, that was now taking on, that was now coming into power, mainly through its economic power, uh, but had a different set of values, and the comic books represented those values. Comics are obviously the focus of a huge amount of attention in the 40s and 50s, but they actually end up being a major subject of inquiry in Senate hearings on juvenile delinquency in the early 50s. Tell me what that was all about, and then tell me what the result of that was. Hmm. Uh, legislators on the municipal and the state level had been acting to do something about comics since the mid-40s. And really, the, the, by 1948, there were already dozens of acts of legislation against comics. Um, and these acts multiplied. And by the early 1950s, there were over 100 pieces of legislation on the books all around the country restricting the sale of comics or outlawing comics. They didn't seem to be doing much. Uh, comics flourished. They grew more lurid and uh, more graphic and uh, pulpier. Uh, and finally, Congress decided that something had to be done uh, and held a series of, not just one set of, but a series of, of hearings on comics and juvenile delinquency that were absolutely devastating to, to comic books. Comic books kind of dominated the public discourse in 1954 were uh, front page of newspapers all around the country, front page of, page of magazines, the subject of literally hundreds of articles and editorials. And uh, after these hearings, uh, there was 
a feeling that something had to be done. Uh, some legislation was passed in New York State that nearly ran the comic book in- industry out of, uh, to the ground, and the comic book business nearly collapsed by the mid-1950s, most of the independent comic publishers were out of business. There were only a fraction of the number of titles published, and even more significantly than that, all the comics that published had to be subjected to uh, the Comics Code Authority, which was a self-regulating mechanism that comic book publishers put together and enforced as a way of preventing government action and it actually turned out to be more restrictive and more severe than any uh, government regulation that to, to preceded it or to follow it. And it d- denied comic books their essence <laughs> as a vehicle of expression of uh, dissident ideas. David Haydu is the author of The Tencent Plague, The Great Comic Book Scare and How It Changed America. David, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks a lot. I had fun. The Tencent Plague is out in paperback from Picador. Parents, do you actually know what your sons and daughters do for thrills and kicks? Teenage kids living it up and doing things they can never live down. Teenage sickle hounds going all out for thrills. Laughing at danger, playing at love, the kind of playing that leads to plenty trouble. But Carol falls for the wrong boy, a petty thief who promises to reform but doesn't. The Flaming Teenage. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, and as always, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can check out on our website as well. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening, and have a wonderful weekend.